All right, thank you for that. Good morning. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, join me in your Bibles in John chapter 13. Jesus just began last week to do what is described in verse 1 there of that chapter as loving his disciples to the end. And that love, in light of what is coming now very soon for all of them, has taken the form of preparation. He's preparing them. He knows that his disciples are not ready for what is coming. He knows that he's about to leave them as he's taken into custody. He knows that he's about to leave them as he goes to the tomb for three days and that his disciples will not yet understand these things. He knows, furthermore, that by these steps, he is in fact creating his new covenant community, the church, which is going to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And he knows that they're not yet ready for that position of leadership that they're going to occupy. Jesus knows all of these things. And he loves them. And he loves us. And so with this time now short, ahead of the arrest, Jesus gets alone with his disciples and gives them extensive instruction and encouragement. We're talking five chapters worth. And they're not going to understand most of it on that night. And he knows that too. But he knows the plan of his father. And so he is not worried at all. He knows that the coming helper, the Holy Spirit, whom he will send, is going to work in these men specifically by reminding them of his words and illuminating their minds to understand the importance of these things. We began to see some of this last week, and what we saw in the picture that Jesus portrays was very helpful. As we noticed that he starts this entire section off with a particular assurance. It's an assurance that he has cleansed them. That's especially helpful even for us this morning, because he's about to move into areas with them that will include commands. So what we find here in the ordering of what Jesus does as he starts chapter 13 is something of a precursor to the kind of thing that Paul's going to be known for later, where Paul in his letters starts with indicatives and moves to imperatives. He starts by laying out the news of what Jesus has done, the work of Christ in his hearers, and then based on that reality moves to command and exhortation about life in light of those realities of Christ's work. That's what we have here as well. Because as we'll see this morning, the instruction and the commands that we're going to find, and we do find them this morning, about our life posture as Christians, Jesus is basing that upon the nature of his posture that he has taken before his Father. You could put it simply, and you could say that what we find is that the kingdom that Christ is establishing, the kingdom is destined to take on the image of its king. Let's begin this morning by hearing John 
13, verses 12 to 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 12, John continues in this way. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Can you tell as you're hearing this read how significant this passage is? to defining what is unique about the Christian life. We have just heard some deeply fundamental realities about the Christian life and what we're called to as believers. And I would suggest to you as we're starting that that means we have a a real opportunity before us here as the Lord is directing our attention to this text this morning. The, The defining characteristic that Christ is commending to us, informing us of, commanding of his kingdom builders, is Christ-like humility. And I'll begin by making a claim that we will demonstrate in our time together this morning, and that would be that Jesus says these things to the twelve, and as he says these things to them, he's quite deliberately teaching about humility's role in two different spheres within his kingdom. This is what we're going to see. That Jesus is telling them something very direct about how authority in particular is experienced and lived out in the kingdom of Christ, as well as how citizens of his kingdom generally will conduct their relationships. These are two spheres we're going to see uh, going back and forth between them this morning. The, The integral role of Christ-like humility within the realm of authority in the church and really in the kingdom as a whole. We'll see it in more than just the context of the local church, but we see it in terms of authority application and we also see it generally in terms of simply citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. It's really something for us to notice as we see this command played out in God's word this morning, that both of those spheres are addressed repeatedly as the Bible calls us to this Christ-like humility. We'll see this morning that both of them are in view here on that, that evening as Christ applies this picture to the 12, and they're both repeated as Christians are called to imitate their Lord. I want us to see this this morning by walking together through three different settings. This is the outline that we'll take. The first thing we'll do is actually leave John 13 in order to look at the context of 
Jesus' words here. That's ironic, but there are, there are details of the circumstances there that night that are not given to us in John, but that we find in Luke chapter 22. So the first thing we'll do is we'll, we'll understand more about the context here by going to Luke 22. The second thing we'll do then is come back to John 13, and in light of that, we'll see more here in verses 12 to 17. That's the second place that we'll go, is we'll make a comeback here. And then the third thing we'll do is we'll see this principle applied elsewhere in the New Testament, outside of this passage. So you'll be doing some turning a bit this morning. First, if you would find Luke 22, and you can uh, find verse 24 there. Luke 22:24. Let's just notice quickly where we are as we come into Luke 22. Uh, lots of the details given between Luke and John are different from each other, and that can make things sometimes hard to discern where we are in the timeline, but this is not hard to see, that Luke 22 is happening at the same moment in time as what we're finding in John 13. So just look above verse 24, verses 7 to 13, what they're doing is they're preparing for the Passover meal to take place, and this is in the year of Christ's crucifixion, right? So John began our chapter with, now before the feast of the Passover. So the, the setting matches there. You look down at verse 31, underneath what I'm going to read, and Luke is about to predict, uh, or give us the record of Jesus predicting Peter's betrayal. It's exactly what Jesus is going to do at the end of John 13. Right? So you see where we are, where verse 24 uh, is is taking place. This is happening amid the same mealtime conversation as the one we're finding in John 13. And what are we told here, starting in verse 24? We read this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, or lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." Now, you remember the two spheres I said we're going to be looking for as we hear about Christian humility applied. They were the spheres of authority specifically and Christian community generally. But what we find is that Jesus' statements here in Luke 22 are specifically dealing with that first sphere, with the, the matter of positions of authority within his kingdom. He's addressing the disciples and their expectation, which is not mistaken that they are going to occupy positions of authority in the kingdom of Christ. The fact that he's addressing that is, is further confirmed in Matthew's account, because in Matthew we find the very same statements made here by Jesus. It's clearly the same conversation. But what Matthew adds to all of this is the fact that that conversation and the disciples' argument was kicked off because James and John's mother had come to Jesus and asked him to promise Quote, that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. 
that's what sparked the whole argument to begin with about who would be the greatest. So, which is hilarious example of, of uh, undue parental involvement. I don't know. There's a lot of things wrong with that situation. But we find there from Matthew 20, just further confirmation, Jesus is speaking here about the realm of authority in his kingdom. And you notice how he describes it. Verse 25 of what we read, Jesus does not respond by saying that there will not be authority, real authority in his kingdom. What he says is that authority is not going to be handled. It's not going to operate in his kingdom like it does naturally in the world. He says authority is in the world is lorded over those whom it leads. But by contrast, he says, with you, the leader will operate with the mindset of a servant. This is what he describes to them. So we're starting here by noticing from Luke 22 that one intention of Jesus' instruction that night to them, as he's washing their feet and as he's calling it an example for them to follow, one intention in his mind is explicitly to tell them about how authority and leadership are going to operate in the kingdom of Christ. Our Lord's example of humility and selflessness directs them in how that leadership and authority is to function. But now come back to our text in John 13. We're coming back to the same place because it's a description of the same events. But let's add this in now. We've seen from what we read in Luke that Jesus' words here do apply and were intended to apply to the disciples in their future capacities of authority. But from the way that it's given to us in John, we find something else as well. We find that Jesus is also speaking directly to his disciples of that second sphere, the more general sphere. His words apply to them not just as future uh, apostles and, and those in authority within the church, but also in the sphere of their own shared equality with each other. We read in verse 14, our Lord says, If I then, your, teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see how it's worded. One writer, writer described this in a way that does a good job of pointing out both spheres in this statement and in this situation. I liked what he said. He said, we would gladly wash the feet of our divine Lord, but he disconcertingly insists on washing ours and bids us wash our neighbor's feet. You hear both of the spheres there? Christ our Lord insists on washing our feet, showing us how authority is going to behave, is going to act. And he bids us wash our neighbor's feet, thus speaking to us as kingdom citizens in general. Jesus directing his disciples in verse 14 toward each other. You also should wash one another's feet. Notice that that does not address the sphere of authority. They are not in authority over each other in that way. He's speaking to them in terms of how they will interact with their equals. You also ought to wash one another's feet. It's a conclusion that's based on a greater to lesser 
kind of argument. Jesus says, if the king has done well in preferring the needs of others, like Jesus has done, then how could his citizens do any different? It's a pretty powerful point that Christ makes here. And it's a powerful argument, even just logically. The power is in how indisputably true this is. We can't deny that this is right. We would naturally tend to object, and we experience that ourselves, uh, how our nature responds to situations in life. We think ourselves by nature to be above the posture of a servant. But Jesus says here to them, you were right as you call me teacher and Lord, for so I am. But if that's right, And if I have done this for you, the inescapable logic is that that means you are never again justified in a lofty self-position that would be above self-sacrificial service. It just can't ever be right for you to again to think of yourself in such terms if it's true that I am your teacher and Lord And it's true that I have done this for you. That's the end of that kind of thinking. He says in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What does that implicitly declare us to be as God's people? I mean, this is a description of us here, isn't it? We are servants of Christ. We are messengers of Christ. Would you deny that title? Every Christian in this place rejoices at such a thing, finds great honor in it even, that we would be called his servants and his messengers. We embrace it because we know that we have found eternal life by our union with Christ. So yes, absolutely, we are his servants and his willing messengers. I mean, we're with Peter. Lord, we will die for you. We will joyfully stoop to wash your feet, Jesus. But what we find here is that that is not what he has asked of us. He's not asked us to wash his feet. He has said to us, you are my servants, A servant isn't greater than his master, and I did not choose to be above humbling myself, sacrificing myself in service. And you have to do the math. What is it that remains beneath you if your Lord and master has stooped as low as this? It's a powerful argument that he is setting to us and giving us as reasons why his command is right And in fact, inevitable for us if Jesus is our Lord. So between this and Luke 22, then, we have a pretty good picture of where Jesus has applied this call and this example to be followed. It's gone to the formal place of the apostles' authority in the kingdom, and therefore of the way that authority in general is going to be experienced in Christ's kingdom. 
And it's also reached out even more broadly as a broad characterization of our postures toward one another as Christians, as citizens of his kingdom. That's very helpful for us because now what we can do is we can go outside of this, this specific event and notice the ways that both of those applications are reaffirmed and are even elaborated on in other places in Scripture, other examples given to us. Our Lord has been so generous in His instruction that He's given us in His Word. And the rest of our time this morning, what we'll do with it is spend it surveying some passages. These will span, you'll notice, a number of human authors even in the New Testament to see where these notions are picked up and applied. So the first place I'll have you go next is the book of Ephesians. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5? And find verse 22. In this context, we see very clearly categories of authority being described as God uses Paul to speak of marriage within his kingdom. Here's what we find. First, we'll just read verses 22 to 24. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Is the presence of authority in this context clear? It's very clear. What's also clear is the model that we've already seen. If we're hearing about authority here, we're not going to be surprised to hear about a particular model for that authority to follow. Authority in the kingdom of God has Christ himself as the model. And so we're not surprised as we go on then into verse 25 and we find what characterizes this authority. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You hear what Paul is emphasizing here about this authority that he's holding out and exhorting us toward. What does he say about this authority? Verse 25, this authority is demonstrated by self-sacrifice. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verses 26 and 27, the goal of this authority isn't self-service but rather it's, in fact, the sanctification of the other, the very sanctification of the one who is being led. It's a pursuit of things, it says, like splendor and holiness 
but not splendor and holiness for itself. Splendor and holiness for the one that it is leading. The word in verse 27 that is translated here, splendor, is the word indoxon. You can hear doxa in there. That's glory. It means held in high esteem, honored, distinguished, splendid. So this husband exercises his authority in a way that actually tries to lift up. It actually prioritizes the true good of the one that it leads. Is that not the same thing that Jesus is teaching and modeling in John 13? It's here. And it's here as Paul is speaking to authority in Christian homes. This is one place that we see this humility emphasized in a realm of authority. Willing self-sacrifice for another. Another place that we find it, and that we find it in reference to authority, has to do not with the home, but with the church. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. So instead of Ephesians 5, find 1 Peter 5. That chapter opens like this. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Stop there for a moment. There's a lot of important directives given there. Is that not true? Elders, it says, are accountable, verse 2, to the flock that is among them. That's where the accountability lies. There's some congregational ecclesiology right there. Elders are to be willing in this role. They're not to be compelled in their leadership. It's also good to note that there is very clearly here, as there was in Ephesians 5, a true and legitimate assertion of authority. So that this notion of the, the particularly Christian way authority looks does not mean that in practice authority is dissolved or ceases to be real and to exist. The authority that's given to church elders in the lives of the members of that church is real. And it's God-given. It's interesting that in verse 5, individuals can be directly commanded to subject themselves to this authority in their lives. One of the reasons it's interesting, actually, is because it specifically addresses those who are younger. Why them specifically, do you think? Why are they... Are, we, are, are the older in our church given permission to rebel against this God-given authority? We've got to find the right age. But after that point, bets are off. Uh, that's obviously not what's going on, is it? Uh, it's probably because, in fact, let me, let me quote for you. Well, one commentator made this point. Uh, I think he's right about this. Uh, it's helpful. He says, this is probably because the younger people were generally those who would most need a reminder to be submissive to authority within the church. 
end quote. When it says young people there, it's not talking about children. That's not the word here. It's speaking about younger adults. And Peter is acknowledging, this is not on point for us this morning, but it's good to notice this since we've come here. Peter's acknowledging a rather pervasive temptation for younger adults to still possess a kind of arrogance or cockiness that can create an unwillingness to follow someone else's lead. And that's what we're being commanded to do, to willingly follow someone else's lead when it comes to authority. So again, these are the sorts of things that are just helpful for us to notice as we come across them. But this morning in particular, what we're noticing is verse 3, where the elders are commanded to exercise this authority. How? It says, not domineering over those in your charge. Doesn't that sound like how Christ described authority in the world? Their rulers lord it over them, but it is not to be such among you, he said. What's the opposite of not domineering over those in your charge? Well, one opposite, I suppose, could be to abrogate your role. And that's not what they're called to here. What they're called to is a graciousness. They're called to a genuine focus on the well-being of those whom they are serving, even the thriving of those whom they are leading. And even when it calls for sacrifice on themselves. Now what's great about 1 Peter 5 here is the way that it then broadens out. So we're seeing clear instruction to the elders about eldering, about authority in a local church. But in verse 5, that focus suddenly changes and broadens. Right in the middle of verse 5. In fact, I read Wayne Grudem complaining about the verse numberings here in our Bibles. He says, there should be a new verse and a new paragraph beginning with the sentence, clothe yourselves all of you. You see, and that's verse 5b, right in the middle of verse 5. Clothe yourselves all of you. Grudem says, there should be a new verse and a new paragraph starting there. I'll continue to quote, because Peter has moved from a discussion of relationships between elders and others in the church to a distinct section dealing more generally with all interpersonal relationships in the church. And you can see that if you go past verse 5. That is where this is going. I think he's probably right about that uh, better paragraph break there. And that is okay, by the way. Our paragraph breaks, our verse numbers, none of that is in the original. That is a, uh, a later edition. So we're okay to make that suggestion. Uh, let me start reading then in the middle of verse 5 with that clothe yourselves. Listen to what he writes here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That all of you is a very deliberate thing for Peter to have inserted there. Notice he has addressed elders and then he's addressed young adults. Now he very intentionally addresses all of them, which means we've now moved out of the first sphere we're talking about of authority into the second. Now he's moving into the sphere of a general posture of Christians within this realm of, of salvation and God's work. And what do we find as we move into the general realm? 
but a command to humility. Now here's a question for you from verse 5. How much humility? Just a little bit? On a regular basis? Maybe once a year we'll invite people to come up and wash each other's feet and then they can check that box off? How much humility is he, advise, is he calling them to here? The text answers it for us, doesn't it? Where do we find the answer? Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's a lot of humility. This is the command. As he looks out to all of God's people, this is what he calls them to. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's the command here. And my friends, it's the command that Christ has exemplified for us as he washed the feet of his disciples. Now that leads us to the place that I would have us end this morning, which is for us to think carefully about how we apply such a command as this. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What does that look like for us? We could get creative as to what this, what this would look like. It might be a thing whose appearance can change in some specifics in different seasons, different peoples, different places. But he does give us some parameters as to how this is supposed to look. One of them that we've seen most fundamentally this morning is that this clothing of humility toward one another we're going to know it when we see it because it's going to be represented by a concern for the good of one another. Whatever it will look like, that's what will be driving it. A concern for the good. So, for example, the creative application of this, uh, maybe I could show humility by thinking of everyone above myself so that I'm not worthy. So maybe I'll show humility by never speaking to another person when I come into the gathering of God's people. That's how I can show humility. I can keep my eyes down. I'll never make eye contact again. That'll demonstrate humility. Would that pass the test of what is what we're being commanded of here? You see, th these, these kinds of of parameters guard us in how we think of our own humility. Because the example of our Lord, as he demonstrated this for us, is an example of concerted engagement toward those that he would serve, not disengagement. His example is one of drawing near to us. And notice, drawing near to us even when it creates, when it makes him uncomfortable in order to serve us. It cost Jesus as he drew near to us in humble service. So then, it looks like action when help is needed. It looks like pushing past natural tendencies to shyness or apathy in order to truly know our brothers and sisters. These are some of the parameters that it would then uh, lead to. None of us is going to know everyone. None of us is going to be involved with everyone in our own community. 
This is exactly why the corporate nature of the church is such a gift and is such a, such a thing of strength. Because we accomplish together what we cannot accomplish alone. Yet this happens as God's Spirit compels each member in our sanctification toward willingness. Toward activity instead of passivity. And done as a display of Christ-like love for God's people. The charge to us is, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's such a protection in the way that that is worded. Because it saves me from thinking that the humility I'm called to is fundamentally a call to a certain view about myself, a certain set of self-thoughts or self-focus. No, he says, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. It's what Art read to us earlier in Philippians 2. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see the parameters that God's word is graciously giving us so that we can obey the example that we've been given to follow? It's an opportunity that we have to obey and to display the love of Christ regardless of the condition that he has placed us in in this life. Regardless of the circumstances. If he places us within marriage and family, there are a number of ways that this suddenly is available to be obeyed and to be pursued. He's given then husbands a sphere in which to sacrifice for the interests of his family as he leads them toward Christ. He's given parents then a sphere in which they might die to themselves in raising up children in the Lord. He's given children then a sphere in which to be trained out of their natural self-centeredness, which is in fact antithetical to this call on the Christian. This is why a family that has become utterly self-focused and absorbed has turned the family itself into an idol. It is possible to do such a thing because in every sphere, God calls us out of ourselves, out toward those around us. It's why if he's given us singleness, whether as a season of life or as a life calling, it's why God's word emphasizes the unique opportunity of such a calling in the very realm of service. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 highlights the advantages given to those who are single. He says there, beginning in verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, we hear something like that with the whole of Scripture in mind. He's not criticizing the married man for being concerned about how to please his wife. Calling that a worldly thing is not to call it a sinful thing. He's simply acknowledging the reality of the divided interests of that married man. By necessity, family life introduces new and additional complicators to a single-minded service to the body of Christ outside of his own family. It's just the way that it is. It's good in that sense. It's a part of God's intention. 
But this is, this is why he would then commend those particular advantages that singleness can afford. And so just like marriage and family as a context can be susceptible to idolizing itself and thus to becoming unfruitful in these ways, so also the single life can idolize itself if it doesn't view its additional freedom that God has given as a God-given opportunity to follow Christ's example of humble service in a way that even surpasses the opportunities of its married counterparts. To see the ways that we are called to shape our thinking around this example of Christ, that citizens of God's kingdom are a humble people. And they're humble in a way that is expressed outward toward those that God has given them. And in all of this, my friends, what are we finding? We're simply finding, we're simply finding that God actually meant what he said when he told us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the clear context of that statement has to do with our own pursuit of inner holiness and sanctification, how we would make use of our body and guard its purity. But the application is the same in terms of how I will take that same body and then live in the world around me, how I will be made use of by the one who has bought me with a price. And what our Lord has so kindly reminded us of this morning, and don't we need these reminders regularly? What he's reminded us of this morning is that a servant is not greater than his master. And when your Lord wanted to equip you for the blessed life of his kingdom, one of the things that he did is to personally embrace humble service in order to then call you to follow in his footsteps. It characterizes the Christian who finds himself in positions of authority, but it characterizes every Christian as we embrace a humility that looks to the needs of others and not just our own needs. Philippians chapter 2. And every time that we do this, we can imagine the pleasure of our Lord as he sees his image being born out in the world that he is in the process of renewing. The very one who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the call that your Father gives to you as a reminder this morning. And we thank him for his mercy and his kindness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning as our maker and the redeemer of all who call upon the name of your Son. You are the one who has made us. You are the one who knows us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. 
you know our thoughts from afar. Before a word is on our tongue, Lord, you know it all together. And Father, we confess that often in our pride, we lift ourselves up in ways that are not good or right. We seek after honor and preference that is not due us. Father, we ask you to forgive us for those failures of ours. And even as we ask, we thank you for your kind and patient way with us. Thank you for the reminder that you've put before us this morning. That if our Lord used his life in service to his, feet, his people, that we find in him an example to follow in this. We ask you, Lord, for our sake, for the sake of those that we love, attend your word with your spirit today, Lord, that he would transform us, grow us, that he would lead us to die to ourselves as we follow after your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen.